This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. In today's episode, we'll be talking about freedom suits. Freedom suits were lawsuits filed by enslaved people against slaveholders with a claim that the enslaved person should be free. Specifically, we'll be looking at the freedom suits filed in Maryland and in Washington, D.C., between the late 18th century and the Civil War. The freedom suits were civil suits, not criminal, and they followed a tradition of common law precedent that said that no person could be deprived of liberty without cause. In order to sue for their freedom, enslaved people needed to make an argument that they were being unjustly detained. Slavery was legal in Maryland, all the way until November 1st, 1864, when a new state constitution prohibited the practice of slavery. Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation the year before had declared slaves in the Confederate states to be free, but Maryland was in the Union and not included in the proclamation. Maryland did have a statute that granted enslaved people the right to petition for freedom, So if slavery was legal, what arguments did the enslaved people make for their freedom? It's important to note that the arguments were narrowly defined and would apply only to the person bringing the suit, or in some cases, their family members. Some enslaved people sued for breach of contract when they had been promised freedom on a future date by a deed or will that was later reneged on. In other cases, they pointed to an ancestor, a few generations back, who was free, arguing that their descendants should also be free. In 1791, Edward Queen, an enslaved man at the White Marsh Plantation in Prince George's County, Maryland, sued Reverend John Ashton for his freedom in the Maryland General Court. Reverend John Ashton was a Jesuit missionary and one of the founders of Georgetown University. The White Marsh Plantation was one of many plantations in the region owned and managed by the Jesuits in a private trust, later called the Corporation of Roman Catholic Clergymen of Maryland. Ashton oversaw White Marsh and held Edward Queen individually as a slave. In Edward Queen's petition, he said he was descended from a free woman and thus was being illegally held in bondage. Queen's attorneys were future Supreme Court Justice Gabriel Duval and future Circuit Court Judge and later U.S. Representative Philip Barton Key, uncle to Francis Scott Key, who would also later argue many freedom suits in court. 
The history that Edward's family told was that Edward's grandmother, Mary Queen, had been a free woman in New Spain, what is now Ecuador, and she had lived in London for three years, and then come to Maryland as an indentured servant. Edward knew the story from his mother and his aunt, and several white men and women remembered Mary Queen. Enslaved people were not permitted to speak in court. Queen's lawyers collected as many depositions as they could, supporting the case that Mary Queen had been free. The first witness they deposed, Richard Disney, was the son of the white midwife who had delivered Mary Queen's daughter, Nan. According to Richard Disney, his mother knew that Mary had been free and was being forcefully enslaved. Several other witnesses recounted similar stories of knowing that Mary Queen had been an indentured servant brought to Maryland by Captain Larkin and sold for a seven-year term. Gabriel Duval's cousin, Caleb Clark, recalled that his mother often heard Mary Queen arguing with James Carroll, the owner of the plantation on which she was enslaved, asking about her freedom. Clark's mother had told him that Carol would respond that Mary would get her freedom, but he never signed any document to that effect, and when Carol died, his property, including the people he enslaved, went to the Jesuit Corporation. Ashton's lawyers did not mount a compelling defense, and in May 1794, the all-white jury decided that Mary Queen was not a slave, and thus Edward Queen should be freed, and awarded 1,997 pounds of tobacco, at least a third of which went to Queen's lawyers. Despite legal maneuvering by slaveholders to make freedom suits more difficult for the enslaved, as many as 50 of Edward Queen's enslaved relatives won their own freedom suits on the argument that Mary Queen was not a slave and thus her descendants should not be enslaved. From the late 18th century until the Civil War, enslaved families in Prince George's County brought over a thousand legal suits against hundreds of slaveholding families. The founding of Washington, D.C. in 1791 opened another jurisdiction for potential freedom suits as well. In March 1857, the U.S. Supreme Court heard the case of Dred Scott v. Sanford, in which Dred Scott was suing for his freedom, on the grounds that he had been brought into states where slavery was illegal. Despite the long history of freedom suits, the court, under Chief Justice Richard Taney, ruled 7-2 to two that black people whether free or enslaved, were not U.S. citizens and thus did not have standing to bring lawsuits to federal court. To help us dive more deeply into the topic of freedom suits, I'm speaking now with William G. Thomas III, the Angle Chair in the Humanities and Professor of History at the University of Nebraska and author 
of the 2020 book, A Question of Freedom, The Families Who Challenged Slavery from the Nation's Founding to the Civil War, the source of much of this introduction. I am delighted to talk to you today about these freedom suits. This is just absolutely fascinating history, and I'm glad that you uh, suggested we do an episode because it, it led me to to learn about this. So can you start by telling me just a little bit about how you got interested in uh, in this history and studying it? Thanks, Kelly. Yes. You know, I about 10 years ago had stumbled across uh, a reference to the Queen v. Hepburn Supreme Court case. And I was actually writing a book review of Kent Newmeyer's biography of Justice John Marshall. Um, it's a terrific biography, and and Newmeyer spent a couple of uh, a couple of pages on um, freedom cases before the Supreme Court, including the Antelope case and uh, Queen v. Hepburn. And I noticed uh, that it was a freedom suit, and I I didn't know anything about freedom suits that early in American history. I, I certainly, of course, knew about Dred Scott and his case, the notorious decision in the Supreme Court. But those early freedom suits uh, were a, a bit of a surprise to me, and um, particularly to see Francis Scott Key arguing the case for the Queens and, uh, and a strongly worded dissent by Gabriel Duval, in which he says it will be universally admitted that the right to freedom is more important than the right of property. And that was in 1813. And so I went to the National Archives to pull the case file and um, see about this case, just to look into it. And um, sure enough, the case files of the 1810 Circuit Court uh, jury trial were there. And not only that, but I, I found that there were multiple other Queen family freedom suits in that court. And that led me to um, see a much wider um, story, a much wider history of hundreds of freedom suits filed in that court and in Maryland earlier in the 1790s. And so what began as one case really uh, quickly developed into a, a study of all of these freedom suits. So this explosion of freedom suits in the 1790s in Maryland, and then uh, follow-on cases that the families brought in Washington, D.C. So you mentioned going into the National Archives. What what were some of the other sources? Was this mostly things you were able to figure out from the legal records? You know, what, what else did you have to do to sort of dig into this story? Right. Well, the case papers that are in the National Archives are of the are about the Washington district court, the, the circuit court of Washington, D.C. But as I dug into this, almost all of the families uh, who brought cases in D.C. Um, had earlier cases in Maryland. And so I had to go to the Maryland State Archives and look up those cases in the judgment records and in the dockets of the, of the general court of Maryland and also in the district courts the, the, or the county courts. And so, um, in effect, um, many of these freedom suits have been um, understudied or, or um, perhaps invisible because they're not reported in the printed, the printed reports of, say, Cranch's volumes of the D.C. court or the Maryland High Court of Appeals appellate decisions. You know, these, all this is taking place at the, at the court level 
um, below the appellate level. And for that reason, they are relative, they were relatively um, under understudied. And so what, obviously, there, to fill in the story, there, there's more than just the, the legal records. So what were the other kinds of sources, archives, things that you were digging into to try to figure out, you know, what, what else was happening and, and how all of these things connected? Yeah, well, the, the first major freedom suits, um, the Queen case that I was most interested in and the Mahoney case were filed against the Jesuit priest John Ashton. And uh, so I went to Georgetown University and looked into the Georgetown records, the enormous, voluminous collection of, of the Jesuit records in the Maryland province archives. And, um, uh, and those records were extraordinary because the Jesuits kept extensive records of their farm operations, including at White Marsh, uh, where the Queens and the Mahoney's uh, were and where uh, John Ashton was the Jesuit priest and manager. So those records uh, um, were, you know, vital. <laughs> and then I went um, to, yeah, I mean, to London to look at cases that had to do with uh, the, the Jesuits uh, and also um, per what appeared to be a chancery case having to do with uh, the Queen family's ancestor, Mary Queen. Um, the, the voyage that she came to London on, the voyage of Captain Woods Rogers. There was a chancery suit after that voyage landed by the creditors, uh, the suit suing uh, Rogers. And, and so it, it that collection also documented um, Mary Queen's landing in London. At what point, as you're putting all this story together, did you realize that there was a, a connection to your own family? Right. Well, I knew that my my grandmother's family, the Ducats, were from Prince George's County, and I, and I knew that they were lawyers and judges in the early part of the um, na early national period. And I knew that um, one of them, Alan Bowie Ducat, had been uh, appointed to the D.C. Circuit Court. But he, but when I first started out on this, I really I, I knew they were slaveholders and tobacco planters, um, but I at first saw really no evidence of their involvement in these cases. And, and besides, Alan Bowie Duckett died very young at 35, and, and he was not on the court when the Queen case uh, came before the D.C. Circuit Court. And so at first, I sort of uh, didn't pay much attention to this aspect of uh, what became a question of freedom. But gradually, you know, um, Further, especially in the Jesuit archives, uh, finding further evidence that Alan Bowie Duckett was um, a lawyer for the Jesuits uh, and represented them. Uh, at least he was on the docket representing them against the Queen freedom suits. Um, and and then looking into the Queen cases, one of the Ducats was the judge in the local court, the Prince George's County Court, and he actually presided on the day when more than 20 uh, Queen family members won their freedom. And it's, I mean, it was the single largest um, court decision, emancipatory court decision that I could find in the records. And so he clearly let all the evidence in. Uh, he may have had his own um, motives for doing so. They may not have been um, liberationist motives or emancipatory motives, 
but in any case, um, Thomas Duckett was the judge in that court. And so gradually, yes, all, all the, these family connections became visible in a way to me that they weren't before. And it was a powerful moment of reckoning for me with this, uh, this history and its implications today, especially as I started to encounter and work with and uh, talk with the descendants of these families, including the descendants of people um, enslaved by the Ducats. So I obviously read a lot of books by historians, and you know it's fairly unusual to have that that sort of personal narrative enter into those kind of books, uh, especially a book published by a university press. Uh, it's powerful. It was I loved it, but you know it it is unusual to have that. Did as you were sort of thinking about writing the book, you know how how did you decide to weave in that that personal narrative, the the connection to your family. Did you get any pushback about about doing that in a, a scholarly book? I did not have any pushback about doing that from uh, either my wonderful editor, Adina Burke, who uh, at Yale University Press, who, who was behind this 100%. And as I thought about this and talked about it with colleagues and friends, um, you know, over the course of writing this book from the 2015, 16, 17 to 2019, um, you know, the reckoning with race and racism in American history um, grew more powerfully uh, across society. And, you know, I was, I was part of that. This book comes out of that, um, that larger moment in American history um, when we have been reckoning with this, the legacies of American slavery. And so I wanted to bring the present into this story. The question really was how, and I wanted to bring the present into this story because so many of the descendants of the families that I was writing about and talked with, this, this history was present to them. It was immediate. It, it was palpably felt history. It was not something that occurred in the such distant past that it wasn't felt. It, it, it had present consequences. And I wanted from the beginning to really reflect that in the narrative. And the question was how. And so what I ended up doing was really putting these interludes between the chapters to draw the reader into this, this story and to make it uh, relevant uh, to today's uh, today's world, and um, and I also thought that if the reader could come along with me on this journey of reckoning, this journey of my own reckoning with this history, um, then that would be um, welcoming. It would open the book up to readers in a way and have an emotional, um, powerful impact on their thinking about not only the past, but the world that they are in today. Yeah. And I, I think it really works. It, it makes it very sort of uh, immediate and compelling and in a way that is, is great because you're absolutely what you're saying that we are in this moment now that, the, you know, I suppose that we've been in this moment for the, the grand scope of American history, but we continue to be in this moment where we have to figure out uh what do these legacies of slavery uh, mean for, for us still today? 
So uh, one thing I wanted to sort of talk about in that then is the sort of motivations of the the people in the story. So the the motivations of the the people who are enslaved seem you know fairly obvious why why they are suing for their freedom and the the terrible choices they sometimes need to make, and the motivations of the uh, the slaveholders well terrible are are also uh can can sort of be understood uh, but it's the the attorneys and the lawyers and you know who are in this who are are sometimes uh it it feels much more complex and hard to understand so you know when we first sort of encounter Francis Scott Key and I think oh great well he's arguing on behalf of these enslaved people who are suing for freedom i guess he's an abolitionist great and it turns out that that his motivations are so much more complex than that so can you talk some about that and and what is going on and and these uh and including the the enslavers who are you know sort of at one point saying okay we're going to free all our slaves and then a couple of years later sort of go back on that and what what is going on uh with all of these people and the the sort of decisions they're making along the way Well this is a enormously significant question <laughs> and you must have all the answers right right now <laughs> Uh, I, I don't. I will try to, to try to illuminate um, what's going on in, in this story and what it might mean. You know, it's absolutely true that the Jesuits at one point vote to decide to um, sell all of all of the enslaved people they hold in bondage uh, for a, a, a restricted term, a period of three, four, five, ten years, after which they would be free. So the, the point of this vote by the Jesuits was to remove themselves from slaveholding and to, um, at a certain point, free all of the enslaved families they held in, in bondage. And there were several hundred, maybe three or th- 300 or more at that moment. They later uh, reversed that decision. You know, so, so literally six years later, the Jesuits uh, decide to um, not to follow through on that vote of their, of their corporation, their, their order. And I think, you know, the motivations are complex. They, there is a, a very real way in which slaveholders, the Jesuits and others, uh, the, um, all the slaveholders in Maryland are seeking uh, to, you know, um, see themselves as in a certain light, as benevolent, as, so at every turn, Slaveholders, including Francis Scott Key, are m- more concerned about themselves than they are about um, the enslaved families they hold in bondage. And um, it's tempting with the lawyers, especially Key, who represents well over a hundred enslaved families in freedom suits. So does Gabriel Duval, by the way, in Maryland. In fact, Gabriel Duval, to my uh, count, represented more enslaved families in freedom suits than any other lawyer, um, including Key. He just does it in the 1790s in Maryland. Key is doing this in the 1810s and 20s and 30s in Washington, D.C. But in both of their cases, and in Duval, we see this clearly, because his an enslaved family he holds in bondage sues him for freedom. And uh, and Duval in the 1820s reacts as all slaveholders do. He defends himself and he attempts to quash the 
freedom suit and remove it to Prince George's County, where he would have a far more favorable uh, jury in front of him. And he, so he, his reaction, his defensiveness, his, um, his unwillingness to countenance such a thing um, was similar to Henry Clay's, who was sued by Charlotte Dupie. So we see the reaction of slaveholders in, in this story. And I think with Francis Scott Key, too, you know, as you put it, um, the temptation is to look at his representation of, of freedom suits or the arguments that he's making before the Supreme Court in the Antelope case, let's say, or in Queen v. Hepburn, and conclude that he's speaking for universal freedom and, and for uh, these ideals. And to a degree, he is. But what I concluded really is that these freedom suits and Key's involvement in them, they're part of his career too. We can't forget that his self-regard is a key part of this. He's, he sees himself as a human, humanitarian. He wants to see himself in that way. And these representing these families allows him to see himself in this way, as benevolent, as humanitarian, as, um, in his case, a pious and faithful Episcopalian. And so, so he opposes the slave trade, and he um, is an advocate for colonization. He can only envision black freedom, though, at the end, really at the end of the day, he can only envision black freedom if it comes with colonization, if blacks are removed from American society. And, you know, that plainly is his, is the core of his, uh, and, and of American racism. So what was it about Maryland law, about DC law that, uh, that allowed these suits to happen in a way that we don't see in a lot of other states. And in fact, you talk about when the enslaved people are removed from Maryland, go to other states and then try to sue for freedom, do not have anywhere near the same kind of success. So what what is it about the legal system there that uh, that allows this to happen? Well, first of all, for many of these families, um, D.C. is a new jurisdiction. They have already spent 20 years suing for freedom in Maryland and in Virginia and if they are taken to Washington, D.C. for any reason, in fact, if they maneuver to have themselves taken to Washington, D.C., then what's open to them is a new jurisdiction. Now, Maryland law applied on the Maryland side of the river, the Potomac River in Washington, D.C., and at that time, Alexandria, Virginia was in Washington, D.C. on the Virginia side of the Potomac River, and Virginia law applied there. But still, um, there were the peculiarities of the, the sort of boundaries that are created by the, um, cre- by the act that creates Washington, D.C., allow, allow for um, enslaved families to, to bring lawsuits they otherwise might not be able to, particularly around the Virginia and Maryland statutes against the importation of enslaved people. And so, um, so crossing these boundaries was a, was a factor and I, these legal boundaries was a factor. And so I think that's true also in Missouri, you know, with St. Louis, the, the number of freedom suits in Missouri. And by the way, there were hundreds of freedom suits all across American courts in the South and, and even in, 
um, in Pennsylvania and New Jersey and in Massachusetts. I mean, Clock Walker's case in Massachusetts effectively ends slavery in Massachusetts. So the freedom suits are, are, are filed by enslaved families all over in every jurisdiction they can reach. Washington, D.C. happened to be, um, because of its, uh, its peculiar border, it's a border within a border, if you will. And it, it'll, it creates that opportunity. But I would also say that as much as that was a factor in the number of freedom suits brought, I think the other really more important factor is the depth of these families in Maryland. These were families with three, four, five generations of family in Maryland who again, had been filing freedom suits or knew about freedom suits filed as far back as the colonial courts. So the, um, this is, in my view, what I call a public underground railroad. The freedom suits are a public, highly political, highly visible means of securing step-by-step step the freedom of one's family. And so while D.C. has some peculiarities, um, the Chesapeake region, uh, the depth of these families' experience plays, a, I think, a, a very significant role. Yeah. So you are a, a digital historian, and I, I wonder, I think this is a term that people hear and don't, don't necessarily understand uh, what it means. Can you talk a little bit about what digital history is and, and the ways that you've used that with this project? Sure. Well, well digital history is... Um, is the use of technology to create new forms of historical scholarship and new forms of historical uh, narrative and um, new forms of, of historical archival access. And so in this case, in this um, uh, project, when I went to National Archives, we, we started with that, uh, that story of going to National Archives you know, they had an index that was just a paper index of that they that the title of this index was Black Washingtonians. And when the archivist pulled it off the shelf and sort of opened it in front of me and and I saw what this was, I was astounded. It was an it was an index that an archivist at National Archives had had compiled of all of the case files of the D.C. court from 1800 to 1862, every mention of a black uh, of, of a black plaintiff or defendant or witness or or participant, and so it's like a it was like a you know a key to a door, right? I mean, I just I couldn't believe. Okay, here is an index that allows us as historians to to really focus on, say, the freedom suits, and um, they were all listed there, all of the Queen cases others throughout the 18th. So um, here at the University of Nebraska, we have an extraordinary center for digital research in the humanities. And um, one of the first things I did to start this research was to write a grant to get some support from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Um, yay, the, the, the National Endowment for the Humanities is so important for all of our, our work, the fellowships, the public the public scholar fellowships, all of this work that historians do. And, and we, received, we received NEH support to digitize 
all of the freedom suit case files. And so all more than 500 of these freedom suit case files were digitized. Um, we had some help from the university of Maryland at college park and, uh, their, um, Institute for technology and the humanities. So it was a joint effort and those are all available online now. Um, and at the, at the, earlywashingtondc.org website. And so if you're interested in any of these freedom suits, the Queen case or any of the other cases, they're available now in a way that they weren't before. And the effect of this is that, as I mentioned, the printed volumes that historians have had to date to use up until this point, Cranch's reports of the D.C. court, routinely Cranch did not include the last names of enslaved people. So it, you know, it was Negro Ben versus Sabret Scott. And the same for Priscilla Queen. I think her initial case was her, her last name was not mentioned. So uh, by digitizing these, making them available and seeing the genealogical information within these cases in which um, depositions were taken and, and depone, uh, the family members would explain the full ancestry, the full history, how everyone in their family is related to one another. All of that is uh, now available on the earlywashingtondc.org website. And so so digital history sort of exposes um, the archival materials that have not been available to scholars and to teachers and to students and um, relates them in ways that um, technology creates a, a, a possibility for further inquiry and new forms of inquiry. And so, uh, so that's the bedrock of this, this, his, this study that uh, I was doing with the Freedom Suits. And for anyone with a dust allergy like me, this is an incredibly exciting thing that you could get access to archives <laughs> without the dust of archives. <laughs> right, exactly. That's a side benefit of digital history. Yeah. So the other thing then you're doing uh, with uh, with these stories, uh, well, sort of two things, but one is this animating history that you're doing and uh, putting these into uh, to, to really neat animated stories. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that process looks like? Right. Well, we are working on several films. This is a collaboration with a screenwriter and um, English professor here, Waquito Dreher. She's also a director and an actor. Um, and Michael Burton, who is a artist and animator and uh, visual effects, uh, lead visual effects artist. So the three of us have been collaborating for several years now to try to use what I would call our historical imagination um, to work around the silences in the archives and to illuminate the world that these families experienced. And so we started with Ann Williams, the case that she, uh, she brought a freedom suit in the 1830s, but 15, 17 years earlier in 1815, she had leapt out of a third floor window at Miller's Tavern, which was effectively a slave jail. And it, and it was widely reported. It's widely known in the historical literature. And we wanted to sort of uh, use our historical imagination 
to see her, um, her moment of decision and what she faced in being taken from her family in Prince George's County, uh, sold into the slave trade in 1815 and, um, uh, and taken to Washington, D.C. You know, we want to especially illuminate and understand freedom seekers like Ann Williams and like Daniel and Mary Bell, whose story we're working on right now as a feature-length film. We want to illuminate their, um, their actions. Um, these were legal and, pol they were legal and political actors in this history, in this moment. So we, we really want to follow their actions and show those actions uh, for what they were. Um, they had extraordinary political uh, import and they were, a they were public, they were performed, they were, uh, they were claims of freedom. And so these freedom stories are ones that we're concentrating on. Um, and we began with the 11-minute short film of Ann Williams. And um, we're now working on a feature-length film that we're almost finished with that will uh, come out in early 2022 called The Bell Affair. And the trailer for it is online. Yes. People can go see. Yeah. Yes. We just, just put it out. And then the other project that you're working on is the, the Freedom Stories uh, that is going to be a, a two-year collaboration in Prince George's County. And this is super interesting and innovative. And uh, so can you, you talk a little bit about what that project is? I'm, I'm thrilled with this partnership with Joe's Movement Emporium. It's a theater, a community theater, a nonprofit and a theater and performance space. And they are doing so many things to, to build creative works around Prince George's County. And in this case, around Prince George's County history. And so they will be taking, adapting uh, the book, A Question of Freedom, into a performance. Um, and they, they have they've gotten support from the National Endowment for the Arts, the NEA, and from Maryland Humanities and other organizations, cultural organizations. And um, they've commissioned uh, the performance play. And the playwright uh, is uh, Salmain24, a local rock star of the theater in Washington, D.C. And uh, he's amazing and talented and creative and inspiring. And his work will bring these stories to stage. And so um, the, the, the collaboration is, is wonderful and it's local and it's history being brought into the community in ways that um, I, I just am so excited to see and pleased to be a part of. I'm, 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 I'm just amazed and honored to be a part of it. Yeah, I love these uh, these super innovative, interesting ways of of getting history out into the community and and making it more accessible. So uh, I could probably keep asking you questions all day, but uh, <laughs> is there anything else you wanted to make sure that we talk about today? Well, I think we've I think we've 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 covered it. You know, your your title of your podcast is Unsung History, and you know the. The story of Charles Mahoney is just, I think, where we might conclude because when I started out on this project, I didn't realize uh, what his his 
freedom suit really meant, but here is a here's a man who filed a freedom suit that took 12 years um, to litigate it, it. It went through three jury trials, uh, two appeals. And at the end of it, you know, the through some um, sort of uh, tactics, uh, perhaps underhanded tactics of the attorneys, his he was he was not free, um, despite an earlier jury trial that declared his freedom. And so he uh, negotiates for his freedom, um, probably purchases it uh, somehow. And then, you know, 12 years later, he purchases the freedom of his daughter, Anne. And so the Mahoney story is extraordinary uh, for the example of courage, a determination, legal sophistication, knowledge, multi-generational freedom making. And, you know, Charles Mahoney's uh, freedom quest took 25 years to unfold. And so I think he, he, more than any other Marylander, he put the question of freedom before his society at his, in his day. And it's, it's an extraordinary and important chapter of American history that we've not acknowledged, and I hope we will. Yeah, absolutely. And I will put uh, in the show notes links to the, these projects that I mentioned, to the uh, earlywashingtondc.org, and, and links to, to your book as well. Uh, so I hope people will check that out because there's, of course, much, much more to this story than uh, what we're able to cover in a podcast. So thank you so much uh, for speaking with me about this. And thank you for suggesting this as a topic. I, I, it was just absolutely fascinating to learn about. Thank you, Kelly. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. MSW.